0: If you did not get notes, if you didn't get a bulletin, um, I highly recommend that you get one. And maybe we got some guys in the back that might have some uh, some bulletins. If you didn't get if you didn't get uh, the notes that are in the bulletin, you really may want to get that. So Heath, I see you getting up to get those for folks. I think. So if you didn't get those, raise your hand, and Heath will get you those in just a second. You're really going to need them to follow along. We're usually not this detailed, but today um, we're going big fire hose. Little Mouth, that's what we're doing. We're going to give you a lot of information, and I'm excited about it. Hey, um, while you're getting that out, I just want to welcome back Dykes and Megan Blackman. They have moved back from North Carolina, and uh, yeah, they... they were up there for a year, and then Dykes got a great job offer back home, and so we are thankful that our prayers worked to woo them back home. Um, we, were, we were praying that they would come back, and so uh, they did, and it's really great to see them hug their necks. They're getting settled back into home. Well, hey, um, uh, as you know, probably today we are uh, taking a little pause out of our Mark series to handle a big, big issue. And um, what we're going to be talking about today is God's sovereignty in salvation. And it goes by several other terms in church history and in theological circles. Um, probably most notably, maybe most um, well-known, the, the subject of predestination. And um, if nothing else, you cannot accuse us of shirking the big issues. We've got sex and dating going on in the youth group and talking about predestination on Sunday morning with the adults. So, um, uh, so what we're going to do today is... I'm going, to, I'm going to say a few things before I read some scriptures. We are going to read a lot, a lot, a lot of scriptures today. I have just about every scripture that I'm going to read written in your notes. And here's what I would recommend. About halfway through, we're going to settle down on three particular passages out of Romans, Romans 8 and then Romans 9 and then John 6. That's where I think you need to probably open up your Bibles and work through it with me. But before that, I'm going to read a whole bunch of scriptures, probably 20, 30, 40 scriptures, and I'm going to kind of fly through them to make some points and it would probably not be profitable for you to try and flip through all of that. You can just kind of, we'll have it up on the screen and you'll have all those scriptures written down there. So just kind of follow along with me on that. But let me say a couple of things. Number one, this is what I'm doing today is a very broad overview of probably, not probably, I think definitely the most complex spiritual truth in the universe. Okay. So this has been being wrestled this has been wrestled with since about the 300s and we've gone about 1700 years and still we haven't quite solved this and there's been much discussion and and uh, many many volumes of books written about this and so there's there's much more that can be said regarding every point along the way that I'm going to make but I'm going to try and resist that to be too detailed so that I can give you kind of a bird's eye view of the issue. Now, the second thing I want to say is that inevitably, um, this will produce questions. I understand that. I'm not just going to throw spaghetti up on the wall and walk away from it. Um, uh, what we'll probably be doing is having some follow-up um, sessions at the point, question and answer type of venues where uh, I would love to sit down with you, with a group of you, and talk through anything, uh, any questions, any follow-up things that you may have. The third thing I want to say, and this is really important for me, guys is that this is an issue that we must approach with tremendous grace for one another. This is an open-handed issue for me. What do I mean by that? If you've been around Crosspoint for a while, you know that there are things, there are truths of the Scriptures that we hold in a closed fist. And these are things that we will not budge on. There are things like that the Scriptures are completely inspired, that, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We believe in the sinfulness of man, the necessity of salvation, the that Jesus is the only way, that there's a real heaven, there's a real hell. Uh, And so those are things that all Christians, regardless of where they fall in this particular uh, discussion, these are things that all Christians believe, and, and that is what we hold firmly to. But there are many other issues of the Christian faith that are really hard and really controversial, And these are things that I believe that Christians can genuinely disagree on but still coexist in loving fellowship together. For me, and and I want you to know this, I need you to hear my heart, and this is an open-handed issue. You do not have to believe or have the same conviction that I do on this matter. This is not a requirement for membership or service or anything. You can be a vital part of Crosspoint if you find yourself... Uh, on the other side of this discussion, that's okay. You will never be asked to leave. You don't have to sign a statement saying that you believe this way. This is not part of our doctrinal statement of the church. It is an open-handed issue that I have a conviction about. And so, therefore, we should approach this with great, great grace. And having said that, this may be the first time that any of you have really considered this matter and i have been wrestling with this issue for about the past 5 years and the more i wrestle with it two things happen the more i learn and the more i realize how little i actually know about this incredibly profound complex and mysterious point of doctrine so we approach it with grace and finally um, this this is very very hard to understand at the end of today, there's going to be some of you that will be like, yeah, I, I, I get you, I believe that. There's going to be some of you like, no, I, what? I can't, you believe that? And then there's going to be some of you are going to be like, yeah, <laughs> what just happened? Um, and that's okay. Listen, take courage in this. Okay, there was this guy in the scriptures, you may have heard of him, his name was Peter, and he was one of Jesus' right-hand guys. In fact, his inner circle of three. And Peter is the... You know, he's the father, the first real pastor of the Christian church. And this is what Peter says about Paul, who is the one who writes most of what we're going to read today. He says, you know, guys, he says in Second Peter chapter 3 at the end of that book, he says, you know, there are some things that Paul wrote that were hard to understand. <laughs> so if one of the inspired Bible writers says about another inspired Bible writer, ah, that's tough, that's tough. Then I think we can take great comfort in that. So, okay. Um Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. We're going to start there, and this is uh, one of the most beautiful texts that believe, that talks about this thing. And we could spend all day just on this text. But I'm using this text as just a launching point to then uh, go into answering five questions that I think help frame the discussion. And then we're going to get in, back into Scripture in Romans 8, 9, and John 6. Um, this is the Apostle Paul writing in... Ephesians chapter one. Let's start in verse three. I'm just going to read this again. We could we could talk about what predestination is just out of these uh, few verses in Ephesians, but we're just using this as a launching point. And I'm doing it to to show you that this is a biblical concept, a biblical concept. Okay, Ephesians one and verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. The forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. That's a key word, mystery. This is mysterious. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11. until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Well, before we continue, let me pray. Lord, as we open up your book, and as we consider this unbelievably profound, mysterious truth, Oh, Jesus, I am so aware of my inadequacy to think on these things, let alone speak on these things. So God, would you, like only you can do, fill this room with your loving kindness and with your grace and with ears to hear and with hearts to receive what you are saying to us. And God, I pray that that grace would not only help us here, but it would help us relate to one another as we wrestle with this truth and as we find ourselves maybe on differing views and sides of it. God, I pray that it would be an issue that would not divide us, but it would be an issue that lets us grow stronger as we pursue You and Your Word. And God, I pray ultimately that You would give me an unusual mix of clarity and compassion and courage to speak what I believe you have convicted me to talk about and then God would it be laid before your throne of grace and if there are any words that I may say that are not true I pray that they would fall to the ground but whatever is true I pray that it would stick to our hearts and I pray that Jesus would be glorified today and I pray this in his name alone. Amen. Well, in the little intro there, predestination, as you can see, it's a biblical term. It's used by the Apostle Paul often. But here's the key question. What does it mean? Virtually all Christians, whether you realize it or not, whether they realize it or not, believe in some form of predestination. So at the core, the issue is, do we believe because God chose us? In other words, is our belief... A fruit of the fact that we have already been born again, or did God choose us because we believed? Now there are two options, and this fits into a wider uh, group of doctrines. And there, and many of you are very, very familiar with these terms, or vaguely familiar with these terms. Um, and it's a kind of a debate between Arminianism and Calvinism or Wesleyanism or or uh, Reformed theology. Listen, I, I, I and I want you to know this for the record. I, I do not defend a system. I don't I don't consider myself a, a Calvinist, an Arminian, a Wesleyan, or I consider myself a biblicist. And so I, I don't because when you start getting too passionate about your system then you come across a scripture that breaks up your system a little bit and then you have more fervor for your system than you do the truth of God. And so what I'm going to argue for today is what I believe the scriptures say about this particular topic and I'm not trying to fit it in any other system. But having said that, I do want to give you some clarity on kind of two views and I think the best way to go about this is to distinguish the two different um, options out there on how to view what predestination is. The first view is the one-handed view, and this is what the one-handed view would hold, that predestination is an act of God before creation in which He chooses some to be saved in Christ, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of His sovereign grace. The two-handed view... And let me stop there and say, in other words, that the, the salvation is all God. It is all Jesus coming down with his arm. And salvation is holy and completely from beginning to end an act of God. We're not talking about salva- uh, sanctification or the rest of the Christian life. But we're talking about the act of salvation from beginning to end is wholly a one handed, completely work of God. That's the one handed view. The two handed view holds that predestination is God choosing believers in Christ based on the foreknowledge of their faith, so that God reaches down with one hand and the the person reaches back with faith, grabs a hold of God's hand, and that's the two-handed view. I hold to the one-handed view. You do not have to hold to the one-handed view, but I hold to the one-handed view, and I'm going to talk about why. Before we get into it, let's phrase let's frame it with five questions. Number one, we need to begin with an agreement on what is God's heart. What is God's heart? Let me read some scriptures for you. Isaiah fifty five, verse one. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Ezekiel 18.32, the prophet says, for God is saying through the prophet, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. Ezekiel 33.11 says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? First Timothy chapter 2. Verses three and four. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Peter three, nine. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we'll talk about those two verses hopefully at the end if we have time. John three, sixteen and seventeen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever, and when that scripture says whoever, I believe it means whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. In Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Jesus says, Come to Me, come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Acts sixteen thirty. It says, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the Philippian jailer. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I don't know what all people everywhere means other than it means all people everywhere, right? All people everywhere Repent. That message is going out to the whole world. Romans 10, 11 through 13 for the Scripture says, Everyone, and I don't know what everyone means, unless it means everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, and that's a biblical way of saying everybody, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all. And I don't know what all means, unless all means all. I think I'm making my point clear on that. Okay. And and all who call on Him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Revelation 22.17 The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. But we refuse. We all refuse. John five thirty nine through 40 Jesus says to the religious people of His day, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you, and I don't know what that you means other than if it doesn't mean you and Me, everybody. You, Me, we all refuse to come that we might have life. John twelve forty seven to 48 says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not, and this is Jesus speaking, For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. And Acts seven fifty one, Stephen, as he is being martyred here, says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always... You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. And Romans 10 verse 21 says, But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That is not just Israel. That is all humanity. That is us. So there's four things that I think we need to agree upon about God's heart. Number one, (laughs) That God's heart is a heart of love. God loves His world, His creation, His universe. He has a heart of love. Point number two, no one who comes to God will be turned back. Point number three, God invites all people everywhere to come to Him and trust in Jesus for life. But the sad truth is, point number four, but many, many do not. Why? Why is that? Well, that leads us to the second question. What is the condition of humanity? And I am about to read some scriptures to you that run absolutely contrary to the self-help, self-esteem culture of American Christianity that wants to make it all about us and feeling good. We live in a world where Oprah dominates and where we do not understand the true condition of the human heart before that heart is rescued by God. What is the condition of humanity? What what has sin done to us? Romans 5 verse 12 it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I don't know what that all means unless it means all, and that includes you and me. Genesis 6, 5, right before the flood, it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And they say, well, God corrected that problem and wiped them all out with the flood. Would well, you know Noah messes it up right after he gets off the boat? I don't have time to tell you that story. John 8:34 Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That's Jesus speaking. The fallen mind, which is every person on this earth before they are seized by Christ, is a slave to sin. We have a thousand different types of social medicine that make us feel like we are not slave to sin, but we are. Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh, which is every mind before it comes to God, there are not pretty good people and wicked people, there are only wicked people. For the mind that is set on the flesh before it comes to God is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Oh. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person, in other words, the person before they are seized by Christ, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to Him, and He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians two one through 3 This is an incredible passage. And you... That's us, not just the Ephesians, everybody. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, and I don't know what that all means, unless it means all. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Colossians 2.13 saying virtually the same thing in a shorter way. And you who were dead in your trespasses. And the final nail in the coffin of human goodness is found in Romans chapter 3. Let me read it. And in the first couple chapters of Romans 1, 2, and 3, Paul is building a case that no flesh can be justified before God. Whether it's the Jews that have the law, whether it's the Gentiles that do not, whoever it is, no flesh can be justified and is righteous before God. And in Romans chapter 3, a stinging critique of the human condition. The Apostle Paul writes this, compiling together some Old Testament psalms. He says in Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, None is righteous, No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. I don't know what no one means unless it means no one. All have turned aside. I don't know what all means unless it means all of us. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God, their Creator. There's no fear of Him before their eyes. Verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's not just the Jew, it's the Gentile who He makes the case in Romans 1 is under this universal law that we can see and we are without excuse. All those under the law so that every mouth, even modern day Americans who think they are owed something because they live in a prosperous land and have air conditioning, every mouth, may be stopped and the whole, the whole world may be held accountable to God. So, what is the condition of humanity? And before you can truly understand amazing grace, you have to understand what you have been rescued from by our own rebellious choice. Sin has left us spiritually dead. Yes, we are physically alive, but we are spiritually dead before we come to Christ. And completely, completely unable to save ourselves. And we have no one to blame for this but ourselves. Because Romans 3 says that the whole world is held accountable before God. Point number three. Dead people cannot make Choices in the sense of coming to God. Dead people cannot choose to dig themselves out of the grave and become alive to God. And point number four God must decide to intervene in order. For salvation to occur. And at this point, some of us may be asking the question and I believe it is a legitimate question because we have grown up in a self-absorbed culture in modern day America where we think we are self-determining. The question is, what about free will? Now this is a concept that must be carefully defined. There was this debate right around the time of the Protestant Reformation and there was this uh enlightenment scholar Erasmus of Rotterdam and he's the one who first sort of crystallized this notion of free will and he writes that this free will is is the ability of man to basically determine his destiny outside of any first primary cause the problem with that is that we are not independent we are the created and Luther Martin Luther you may have heard of him the father of the Protestant Reformation the reason we're kind of here today and I'm not wearing a robe the the, the Martin Luther Is, it comes, and he writes a book, his, probably his greatest treatise, and it's called The Bondage of the Will. And I believe Luther rightly argues that human freedom is limited, and we have to carefully define what that means. He says, yes. We make real choices, but those real choices are born out of our desires. We cannot make a choice apart from our desire. I mean, I may not want to go to work if I have a tough job, and so, I, so I'm, I'm going to work, but I'm, going, I'm making that choice of something that I don't want to do because I don't want to get fired because I want a salary to be able to buy stuff and live. And so he says that we make real choices based out of the desires of our heart and we cannot do anything apart from our desires and the human heart is fallen and wicked and at its base, before it comes to Christ, desires nothing but selfishness. So yes, we have real choices that we make that make a difference, but we are not completely autonomously free from our Creator. Scripture, point number two, nowhere says that we are free in the sense of being outside of God's providential control. Read Proverbs 16 sometime. Proverbs 16:9 it says that the mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And even in a seemingly... Uh, random event like the casting of lots and the casting of dice in proverbs 16 verse 33 it says that the lot or the dice or the random chance is cast into the lap but every decision is from the lord even what seems random in our reality is decided on by the lord that should give us great comfort but i'm getting off track so let me get back due to sin we are unable remember Indeed, it cannot, Romans 8:17. the mind cannot submit to God. We are unable to do right apart from God's power. True freedom would mean total independence of created from creator, which would make us little gods unto ourselves. So we do have, and this is important, because I'm going to deal with this, this notion of fatalism at the end of this. It is not a fatalistic system. We do have real choices. You can be an Auburn fan, or you can be a Georgia fan. You can be a USC fan, or you can be a UCLA fan. And obviously you have choices and much more complex issues than the like. But I cannot, I cannot be 6'3", 220, run a 40 and 4'5", bench press 300 pounds, and be the starting quarterback for the San Diego Chargers, which is what I really want. Because I'm 5'10", I'm 185, and I don't have a very good arm. And I'm slow and I'm not very strong. <laughs> oh, I wanted to play for the Chargers. But I'm limited. So our free yes, we're free. We're as free as any creature that has ever been made is free. And you have real choices that you can exercise every second of your life, but you are not free outside of God's providential control. It leads us, and we're winnowing it down now. We're ruining it down. This leads us to our fourth question. So, how are people saved? Because they're dead. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Oh, I love this next scripture. Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the kindness or when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. And renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So simply, and I think everyone agrees with this, how are people saved? We are saved By God's grace, He pursues us. Now, here is the crux of the issue. And I'm whittling it down. This is the last question that we'll ask. And then we'll get back into working through a text. And we'll get into Romans 8. Questions 5. Listen, this is important. You're going to have to think deeply with me here now. Question number 5. Okay, so we're saved by grace, right? But does God's grace... Merely enable us to make our own choice? Or is it always effective in bringing people to Christ? Now, there are two views on this. The first view, and this is um, in alignment with the two-handed view of salvation, is that God has given a sort of universal enabling grace by the theologians. It's also called prevenient grace. And it is a grace that merely creates the possibility for salvation. And that's the type of grace that comes for salvation. The one-handed view would hold to what I like to call effectual grace. Some people call it irresistible grace. I think that's a really bad term because it kind of... Denotes that God beats you over the head, and he, you know, kind of drags you kicking and screaming. No, it's effectual that God woos us, and in a sense guarantees, like we read in Ephesians chapter one, that, that, great, that this is a type of grace that actually regenerates a person and saves them, guaranteeing that they become Christians. So this is a critical point of understanding. You see that in one sense, are we saying, okay, everybody, everybody, everybody would agree up to point four that we're saved by grace, right? And so, but does that grace come and just merely make open the way of salvation? Or does that grace come and in a mysterious, profound way, make definite the salvation for those that are going to become Christians? Here's the problem with prevenient or enabling grace. And I've got four things here. And listen, if you're on the other side of this, it's okay. It's okay. And right about now, some of you that have never considered this issue and just kind of wanted to sing a few songs and get a good message for Tuesday, come back next week. (laughs) Look, hang with me. This is so. This is so. When, regardless of where you are, thinking on these things will bring worship in your heart. Here's the problem with enabling grace. Thinking of it that way. Verse, uh, point number one, if grace merely makes possible salvation, we are still left to ponder why some people are saved and others are not. Is it become because one was given more faith? I mean, if our objection to the one-handed view is that on some level it is unfair, then wouldn't it be very unfair to God give, you know, intelligent Americans more faith than He gives somebody in an undeveloped country? Or an intelligent person more reason than an unintelligent person? Is it because one was given more faith? Is it because one was stronger and more able in and of themselves to exercise that faith? To some degree, listen now. To some degree, universal enabling grace that merely makes the way possible for salvation makes faith a work that the sinner brings to the table. Do you follow that? Number two. The response is often that faith is not a work, it's a gift. So somebody would say, well, yeah, even the faith that I bring to the table, God gave me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm tracking with you. So you're saying it's a gift. I didn't have. But what makes the Christian's gift of faith work and the hellbound person's gift of faith not work? That's a perplexing question, is it not? Is it because of some strength or intelligence in the Christian? is it? Is it? Certainly not, we would all say. And so, to some degree, I think you have to admit that this notion of enabling grace, or prevenient grace, takes a little bit of the credit for salvation, and just siphons off a little bit, and gives it to the sinner, who at some level is dependent on me, to either do it or not do it. And so at the end of the day, it's 99% God and 1% me. That's my problem. In fact, the consideration of this truth is the thing that has made me embrace that salvation is all God from beginning to end. Number three, the biblical evidence for prevenient or enabling grace is weak. Millard Erickson, who is a respected, unbiased, very well-known scholar, he's wrote a book called Christian Theology, it is widely used in Bible colleges and seminaries on all sorts, sorts of the aisle. He says, the problem is that there is no clear and adequate basis in Scripture for this concept of universal enablement. The theory, appealing though it is in many ways, simply is not taught explicitly in the Bible. And point number four is that that being true, there are numerous examples of effectual, irresistible grace in the scriptures and we'll get into some of these in just a moment. And so right now I imagine that the objection is but wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute I'm tracking with you up to this point but that's not fair. That's not fair. That God would save some and not others. I am not unattached from that difficult thought. And I want to we're going to, to talk about fairness when we get into Romans 9 in just a second. But let me give you an illustration. Let's think about the one-handed view and the two-handed view. And the illustration is there are ten dead, drowned swimmers in the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. They're not struggling to make it. They're not doggy paddling. They're not taking in water and about to go on. Remember what we talked about, the state of humanity. Before we come to Christ, they are dead. They're at the bottom of the ocean. So ten swimmers drowned at the bottom of the ocean. We're going to talk about how the one-handed view handles that. Ten swimmers dead at the bottom of the ocean. We're going to talk about how the two-handed view does that. Remember with this notion of fairness now. Okay? So the one-handed view says that there are ten people dead, and that represents all humanity. And that the Holy Spirit, with the effectual call of God, the wooing, guaranteeing grace... Dives into the depth of humanity in the person of Jesus Christ lives in this world and grabs seven of them and brings them And puts them on the shore brings them back to life and so loves them and guarantees to them That they will never jump back in that water and it's not that God didn't love all the swimmers But all of us made our own choice remember this is the complexity that all of us because of our own choice are dead That's the mystery, that we're dead and God made it. It's hard to understand and we'll get to it in Romans 9. But the good grace of God dives in, grabs seven of them, puts them on land, resuscitates them. Although they may have tough time on that land, He will, through His love and persevering mercy, guarantee that they never forsake His goodness. And over on this side, hey, we say, oh, well, what about the three? And over on this side, over on this side, The two-handed view is that the Spirit of God jumps in through the person of Jesus, resuscitates halfway or whatever, brings them back just enough to bring them all up to the surface, lets them all breathe. And says, okay, now you decide, you decide. And the reality is, because every biblical Christian believes in the reality that there is a real hell. So we can't say that all of them are safe. The reality is, is that Jesus there is saying, okay, now you make your own decision. And three of them float back down. And seven of them get up off onto the shore. Kind of because they exercise it more for some reason than these three did. And they get up there. And oh, by the way, during their time on that shore, some of them can jump back down in there. And so if you think that this is unfair, do you not think that this is unfair because you have a God that can do anything and save anybody and for Him to stand ivory by while some jump back in, is that not unfair also? So our real objection, friends, is that anybody would go to hell. Anybody would go to hell. And we have to deal with that question. But the objection is not that God is cruel. In this way, and fair in this way, do you understand the dilemma? With that, let's go to Romans chapter eight. If you're a visitor here today, <laughs> enjoy our one Sunday together. <laughs> Oh God give us grace. <laughs> Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God. Oh this is one of the beautiful truths of scripture. Romans 8:28. And we know that for those who love God all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, what does that mean? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the first among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Quickly, because I want to get into Romans 9. What does foreknew mean? Remember, we we serve a loving, personal God. The two-handed view is forced to think that foreknew there means a certain set of facts about that person, meaning that God looked down through the corridors of time, knew who would put faith in Him, and chose that person based on that faith. But in the one handed to do that foreknew as a personal knowing that God has chosen not some set of facts about that person, but God has chosen that person. And then goes about this beautiful, the theologian called this the golden chain of salvation. That He then, although they may have difficult times in life, He predestines them to conformity, sanctification, and ultimately justification, which, which comes before sanctification, justification, sanctification, and then ultimate glorification the problem with the two-handed view that God just foreknew something about you, in other words, that you would exercise faith, the problems are similar to what we just talked about. Obviously not all are safe. So if salvation is based on foreseen faith, does that mean that the Christian has a better form of faith than others? If so, then why did God not give everyone this type of faith? Foreseen faith inevitably leads to a work within that person, apart from grace, as the grounds for salvation. Salvation based on something good in us is the beginning of salvation by merit. And if the main objection to the one-handed view is that it is fatalistic and determines all things, then listen to this, additionally, if the main objection to the one-handed view of God choosing a person apart from faith is that it does not give people a free choice, then the same must be said about God choosing based on forcing faith. Follow me now. In other words, if God can look into the future, which of course He can, and sees that person A will come to faith in Christ, and that person B will not come to faith in Christ, then those facts are already fixed. They are already determined. So both views to some degree are still under the amazing providential control of God. Do you follow me on that? Okay. And some people say, let's go to Romans chapter 9. Some people say, oh, well, Brad, the one-handed view puts way too much in God's hands and it leads to loose living. But you fail to realize that Paul says that you are conformed to the image of His Son. So here's what I would say is that although, yes, the Christian will still battle with temptation and sin and may go through terrible struggles in their life, they are ultimately conformed to be like Jesus. Not that they will not struggle, but that Jesus will move about in them in an effectual way, wooing them into, into conformity in their way. And a person who says that I know God and I can live any way that I want because God has chosen me is revealing the true hardness of their heart and they are re- are probably revealing... The they never really know Christ. Romans chapter 9. This is... I'm going to work through it quickly. Hang with me, please. I won't do this to you again next Sunday. This chapter, the first time I read it, brought me to my knees. I had read it, I guess, before, obviously. But about five years ago, I really read it. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried. Romans 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh they are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory the covenants the giving of the law the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever amen think about the context of what's going on here Paul is the primary apostle to the Gentiles in the Old Testament the Jewish people were thinking that this message of salvation is only to them now in large part they reject jesus paul now becomes the apostle to the gentile world and now he is defending against this accusation that somehow god's word has failed because israel on a whole part rejected him and now the gentiles are accepting jesus and so he says in verse 6 but it is not as though the word of god has failed for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what he's saying is there is that Israel is not a physical entity because they have the bloodline of Abraham. The true Israel is a spiritual Israel that comes to faith in Christ, and he's going to talk about how that comes about in just a second. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not, listen to this, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His uh, cause, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now there's a lot of discussion about what Paul means when he says, and he's quoting a verse in Malachi, Esau I hated. I think that doesn't mean that God hates people that are not Christians, but it means that He ultimately gives them up to their depravity and their sin. And in a passive sort of way, God passes them over. And then verse 14, where Paul is answering this question. He's answering this question. Is it unjust? Because this is, he's, look, he's, he's anticipating the same question that we have. Isn't it unjust for God to choose Jacob and not Esau? Or in other words, on a grander scale, some people for salvation and not others? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. When I read these verses that follow, I cried because it was the end of my last attempts at self-reliance and credit for my own salvation. Verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy On whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion. On whom I have compassion. Verse 16. So. So then. Listen to these words. So then it depends not. On human will. Or exertion. But on God. Who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And at this point, I think if we're not human... If we don't have a pulse in us, I mean, we would not say, whoa, 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 what? Really? And then he anticipates our next question, but that's that's, that's unfair. And what follows is, I believe, the hardest few verses in the entire Bible. Verse 19, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? I mean, if in some sense God is thwarting all things, then how am I still a responsible creature? For who can resist his will? Verse 20. I do not want you to think that I have a cold heart and I hope to by the end convince you about my heart that all would come. But verse 20 is something that every human being must deal with. We are talking about the sovereign, free, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God of the universe. And this is what he says back to the objection that I think every every person in this room should on some level have but who are you oh man to answer back to God will what is molded say to its molder why have you made me like this verse 21 has the potter no right over the clay to make out of The same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? Verse 22, listen. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom He has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now let me stop here and say, That there are two different interpretive thoughts on this passage. The open-handed view, or the, I mean, the one-handed view says that this refers to not just nations, and what's in view here is, is individuals and nations, I believe, but Jacob and Esau, these two individual real people, then through their descendants become nations that have a play in redemptive history through the rest of scripture. Jacob becomes Israel, Esau becomes Edom, this nation that's at war with Israel. And so, the thought is here, well, surely, and I believe it's an attempt to soften the, the, the depth and the hardness of this truth, is that this is just talking about nations. That certainly God wouldn't choose individuals like that. That this is talking about the nations that sort of, you know, in lineage come through Jacob and Esau. And that's the two-handed view. The one-handed view would, well, yeah, this is hard, but I believe it refers to individuals and Nations. Here's the point. It's much debated, but I think the idea is, and I think it's answered quite clearly in Paul, that who are we, O oh man, to tell God how to be God? And if we say that this is just about nations and not about Israel, I mean just about nations and not about individuals, well poor saps, Jacob and Esau, who it was about them and they were individuals. And so sorry, Esau, you had to take one on the team so that God could just sort of start this purpose of dealing through nations. And what about Noah? What about Abraham? Look, Noah, there was nothing good in him, but God chose him. What about his next door neighbor? God didn't choose him and wiped out the whole world. What about Abraham? Look, he's living at the same time as thousands of other people, but God chose Abraham in his paganism. What about the other poor sap? Individuals were elected there. And it is so hard. And if you don't come to the Scripture in tears, awestruck at the freedom of God, I don't think you have really grappled with these Scriptures. I conclude with this. Go to John 6 quickly. Hang with me and we will end. We talk about, we've talked about Paul's words. Now we end with Jesus' words. Very quickly, then I'm wrapping it up. John chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 37. John 6 verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. Look, go to 37 again. All that the Father gives me will come to me. That sounds like effectual, guaranteeing, Grace and whoever comes to me, I will never come out. Go down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and go to verse 65. It says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. Three quick impossibilities that I believe Jesus's words here um, present to us. And then some final thoughts and then we'll wrap it up. Number one. It seems very clear to me that it is impossible for a person to come to Christ apart from being drawn by God. No one comes to the Father unless they're drawn by me. Number two, and this is where it is is critical, it is it seems clear, it is impossible for someone whom the Father draws not to come to Him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And Point number three, as far as an impossibility that seems clear here, is that it is impossible for a person who is drawn and who comes to be cast out. Some final thoughts. I understand the tension and the discomfort of this. I've wrestled with this for quite a few years, and I am still learning. It boils down to this, friends. I am more uncomfortable with a God who in some level stands idly by and has limited himself to the will of sinful men. I am more uncomfortable with the implications of that than I am with some of the very difficult implications of God being completely sovereign. It's okay if you're on a different side on this. I'm just saying I understand the tension. I understand the difficulties of the one hand of you. I wrestle with them. I am, I am very uncomfortable with them. And I cry at times as I think about people that I want to come to Jesus. And, I say, and we're going to talk about evangelism in a second. But I am, more uncomfortable, I am more uncomfortable with a God who has weakened himself and subordinated his will to human will than I am with a God who is free over time as I have wrestled with this doctrine it has moved from being a struggle to me to a great comfort to me because I know that I am adopted and I know that God has moved in my heart and I know I know because the Spirit of God has confirmed in my heart, read Galatians 4, read Romans 8, read 1 John 5, that I am a child of God and it has given me so much confidence because I know that my salvation is owing to no good thing in me, but God the Father has adopted me. The question is this, ultimately who chooses to go to heaven? Is it Satan? Certainly not. Is it man? Maybe. Is it God? I think it's God. Some common questions and we'll be done. What does this do to evangelism and prayer? Because see, the air is just something, Oh well, c'est la vie, fatalism, this is kind of everything set. If you think that way, you do not understand the scriptures because right after Paul writes Romans 9, he writes Romans 10 and in Romans 10 he says but how will they hear unless somebody goes and preaches to them how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news so you have to realize that this is set forth in the context of Paul's life who isn't living fatalistically who isn't living like everything is a done deal he's planting churches, he's getting beat, he's getting shipwrecked he is doing whatever it takes he's compelled by the Holy Spirit to reach whoever. He's preaching to everybody because in Paul's mind, although he knew there was a God outside of time who was sovereign over everything and providentially in control of everything, as far as Paul was concerned and as far as I'm concerned, every person in this world, every person sitting in this room has a real choice to make, either to receive or reject Christ. So I will preach the gospel to every person, knowing that God can get a hold of their heart and it depends not on the fallen will of a man but it depends on God who is rich in mercy as Ephesians 2 says how is this not fatalism Oh, listen to this this is from an old historic church document called the Westminster Confession of Faith it's a Presbyterian thing I'm not Presbyterian we're not Presbyterian but I think it's a really good way of putting it. It's in chapter 3 of that confession. It says, and this is mysterious. It says, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. In other words, God does not violate the will, and as much as that creature has a will, he does not do it. So God, human, human freedom and the sovereignty of God are not two opposing forces on the same plane. God has a way of being sovereign that can magnify it, go beyond human, credi- uh, 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 comprehension as Roman, as Reynolds read in Isaiah 55, that his ways are higher than our ways, so he can be sovereign in all things, but yet you have a real choice to work out your life and respond or reject to Christ in this life. Point number three, and I have such compassion for this. My loved one is not saved. What hope do I have? You know what your hope is? Your hope is not in that person. Your hope is in God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, take the time to read it. I referred to it earlier. You were dead in your trespasses. And then in verse 3 and 4, it says, but God, who is rich in mercy. This doctrine does not say that God is some mean tyrant casting people away, but it portrays a God who is rich in mercy. I have loved ones that are not saved. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to bank on the free and rich and profound depth of God's grace, rather than the fallen, broken will of that person who's doing drugs, doing their own thing, downloading porn, cheating on their wife, doing all this stuff. That's not what I'm resting, that that person might have their own free will, turn towards Christ. I'm banking on God who is free and rich and deep in His mercy. And God may very well be calling you to be the means by which He brings about the end in their life. So, you can't just settle on Romans 9, that it not depends not on human will, but on God who has mercy. Then you have to live out Romans 10 that says, Now, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Our hope for our loved ones that are not safe is God who is rich in mercy. I'm doubting my own salvation. What should I do? Listen. Doubt is not unbelief. A guy we like to call John the Baptist doubted Jesus. Right? And let me throw something out at you. The fact that you're doubting (laughs) is kind of indicative that you're probably a Christian or you're on your way to becoming a Christian. People that don't love God and don't care about God tend not to care whether or not they care about God. (laughs) Doubt your doubt. Doubt your doubt. That's not who I am. That's not who I am. Read Romans 8. Read Galatians 4. Read 1 John 5. the Apostle John says at the end of that in chapter 5 he says I write this letter so that you may know that you are his doubting doubting is a normal part of the Christian experience doubt your doubt you're struggling with some doubt get around some Christians and let the Spirit of God grab a hold of your heart and confirm for you that you are His. You do not have to share this conviction. Quite honestly, I did not want to roll this out on a Sunday morning. But it has come up because of recent events. Nobody has been told that they have to agree with me or go. This is an open-handed issue for me. I believe we can walk in unity in this. And I believe that regardless of where we fall on this, that as we pursue God together, we will all grow in grace for each other and wonder for God. Guys, if you would come back. Let me pray. Oh no, Lord as we um, Lord as we as we in this time of looking in the space of about 60 minutes what has been wrestled with for 1700 years I pray that you would give us Grace that is rich and free. I I pray, God, that you would take my feeble words and that you would use them for your glory. I pray, God, for these people who I love so much. I love. This church more than words can say. I pray God for those of my brothers and sisters, for any of them that might find what I have said today to be distasteful or hard. God, would you would you begin a process in them, not to convince them? I, I, I that's not my heart today. Just just to get them to grapple with you. That, as Reynolds said. Earlier today, we can't put you in a little box. I'm, I don't care anything about systems. I I don't care about that stuff. I care about the scriptures. And I care about being passionate. And God, I believe that this truth has released me from insecurity and has allowed me to rest in the sovereign hand of God, who is not in a dualistic fight with the evil of this universe, but that has, in some amazing providential way worked out all things for his glory and that all things means all things and that God this universe is not about me but it is about you and you getting glory so God would you let us wrestle with that and would you make us a stronger church as a result of it and God hears my heart because I preach the gospel every Sunday here and I Make a call for a response virtually every Sunday here because my heart is a heart of an evangelist. So, God, if there's anybody in this room today that through this discussion today, it has become it has become illuminated to their spirit that they do not know you. God, would they now respond? Look, God, would that person now make the decision of their heart? which I believe is being born again right now, would they make the decision, the real decision, to turn from sin? God, I know there's a guy in here probably because, uh, because I know what this is like. There's a guy in here that is caught in the traps of pornography and sexual sin and lust and it is ravaging his heart. God, would You, would You through Your living Word make that man born again and would he turn to You and trust? and would he repent of his sin and would he come and would you turn his heart back to his wife like you turned my heart and God would you do what he cannot do would you save him today and God as long as I'm alive God give me the breath to preach the gospel God give me the breath to preach the gospel free to everyone because whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So God, would you would you let would you let the hopeless sinner respond? Would you let the Christian wrestle? And would you let them wrestle and come up from the mat saying how great how great is our God? How great is our God? How how great how great is our God (laughs) how great how great how great is our God let it be God let it be in Jesus lead us in